I want to read a couple of verses from Hebrews. Uh, I'll be coming back to these same verses again next week as we look at uh, Hebrews verses 1 to 4 for next week. So you know your homework now, Hebrews 1 to 4. Not, not as much homework as you had now, whole, whole of Hebrews. But I just want to read a few of the verses together. So Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Old Testament. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. New Testament. Now chapter 2 verse 1. There's a reason for this book. Here it is. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Right, we've summarized Hebrews. But you're not going home yet. Old Testament points to New Testament. Why? So that we would be encouraged. There's the theme of Hebrews. Now, I want to read you the story of a guy called Antonius Bar David. If you think of the name now, Antonius, Antonius rather, is a Roman name. Bar David is a Jewish surname, which means son of David, Bar, son of David. So this is a Roman Jew, and I'm going to tell you his story. And as I tell you his, a bit of his story, I want you to listen to the information you're getting from it because I could give you what was happening in those days and times in a list of bullet points and you'd snore and fall asleep and we'd all not know what was happening. So I'll tell you a story. Listen for the background detail because it will set the scene for Hebrews. It's a lengthy quote of six minutes, but listen. Antonius sat alone in a deteriorating second-story apartment located in a slum on the slope of Esquiline Hill in Rome. As rain pelted the age-worn wall outside, a plate of bread and vegetables and a cup of sour wine rested on the makeshift table in front of him. The room had turned dark with the coming of a storm, and Antonius lit a small oil lamp against the gloom. With the light, hungry cockroaches materialized, scampering to the dark safety of cracks in the wall. In the apartment next door, a baby cried, and the infant's father screamed obscenities at the infant's mother. An urgent conversation rose and then faded as an unseen pair of business partners walked down the stairs outside. Somewhere in the muddy street below, a unit of Roman soldiers marched past driven under sharp orders from its commander. Antonius sat alone, thinking. That morning, his employer, a rough, burly fellow named Brutus, once again turned from the task of pricing fruits and vegetables to ridicule this young Christian. The verbal jabs had become as annoying as gnats darting to and fro in the shop's pungent air. Brutus was big, obnoxious, and cruel. Antonius cringed against the man's emotional blows, wishing he could strike back out of his hurt and embarrassment. Each time he turned the other cheek, 
it received a slap in kind. Yet, he bit his lip, nursed his wounded pride, and again asked the Lord's forgiveness for his thoughts. Persecution of the church in Rome had yet to result in martyrdom, but since the expulsion of Jews under the emperor Claudius, Christians had continued to be harassed to various degrees by both Jews and pagans. Upon the expulsion of these Christians, some had suffered imprisonment, beatings, and the seizure of their properties. That was almost 15 years ago now. Antonius had not been part of the Christian church at that time, but had heard about the conflict. In fact, his own grandfather, ruler of the synagogue of the Augustines, had been one of the most outspoken opponents of these Christians. When at 17, Antonius converted to Christianity, the old man almost died, declaring Antonius dead in a shouting match that ended in a shattered relationship. In recent months, abuse of the church had escalated with the amused approval of the Emperor Claudius, and now emotional fatigue was taking its toll on these believers. Antonius had been told the cost of following the Messiah, but somehow his experience was different than what he expected. In the beginning, he thought his joy would never be broken, that he would always feel the presence of God. He had been taught that the Lord, the righteous judge, would vindicate his new covenant people. Didn't the scriptures, speaking of the Messiah, say that God had put all things in subjection under his feet? But the church had taken a great beating lately, and members of its various house groups had become discouraged and were questioning whether Christ was really in control. In their hearts, they wondered if God had closed his ears against their cries for relief. Some in their disillusionment doubted and left the church altogether. Antonius by David remembered the traditions of the synagogue and the support of the Jewish community. He remembered the joy of the festivals and the solemn celebrations of the Jewish calendar. He appreciated the fellowship of Christ's community, but genuinely missed the traditions of his ancestors. And he missed his own family. He watched them every day from a distance as they walked together to market by the Tiber River. Some of them still would not speak to him and passed him on the street as they would a Gentile. That was so difficult. And today his loneliness closed in around him like a dark, damp blanket. To make matters worse, he was one of the poorer members of the church. When Antonius became a Christian, he lost his job as a tailor's apprentice in the Jewish quarter. He now spent his days sorting rotten produce, sweeping the floor, swatting flies, and receiving orders from obnoxious Roman slaves shopping for their rich mistresses. He stooped so low as to take pieces of rotten fruit home to supplement his meager food supply. To be poor and a Christian invited double portions of ridicule. Antonius had missed the weekly meal and worship with the other believers for the past two weeks, and his heart had cooled somewhat towards the little house group. A spiritual itch in the back of his spirit warned him, cautioning him concerning his loss of perspective. Yet, 
In recent days, he had begun to snuff such thoughts from his mind as quickly as they came. Antonius's bitterness over his current circumstances was growing and slowly obscuring the truth. That night, the believers were to meet for worship and encouragement. Rumor had it that the leaders had received a document from back east somewhere. Although discouraged and tempted to skip the meeting again, Antonius's curiosity was now aroused, and he decided to travel the short distance to the neighborhood watch at which the neighborhood house at which the fellowship was to meet. Entering the gathering room, he spoke greetings to several friends who also looked tired from the day's work. The hostess offered something to drink and some friendly banter, but dejection hung like a cloud over the room. When the meal was finished, the group's leader, a good and godly man of almost 70 years, finally arrived. Joseph was out of breath, having come from a meeting with the other leaders halfway across the city. He was visibly moved as he stood smiling before the group of about 20, his hands shaking slightly from advancing age. Take note, 70 years. After a few words of introduction, Joseph took a deep breath and explained he had talked with the other leaders into allowing his little group the first reading of the scroll. With a twinkle in his eye, the elder said, I believe you will find this quite relevant. He unrolled the first part of the parchment and began reading with vigor. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Discouragement. Not new, is it? What believer through the ages, at one time or another, hasn't felt the grip, this numbing grip of discouragement pulling you towards the mire of self-pity and despair? Life and the Christian life is filled with trials. And these trials sometimes suck the emotional winds from our sails. You feel like you just can't go on. And when discouragement comes, and I'm talking about the kind of discouragement that starts asking faith questions. We need encouragement. We need upliftment. We need perspective. We need the body of believers around us. We need our community of faith. We need help to stay on course and to persevere, to stay committed. Have you ever found yourself wavering in your devotion to the Lord? I'm not asking in your faith, but in your devotion to the Lord. Finding things all a little bit difficult? You see, this letter of Hebrews is for you and me. Because I'm sure we've all been there. This book of Hebrews contains confidence. It contains assurance for the Christian. Or perhaps you're a cruising Christian. You know you've been saved and now you can just sit back and enjoy the ride. Well, Hebrews reminds you too of the cost of true Christian discipleship. And that salvation is a continuing process of sanctification. Being made to be like Christ. And sometimes that takes pain. 
So, Hebrews is for you too. Or perhaps you've got a hid knowledge about Jesus Christ and you know everything you think there is to know about becoming a Christian and being a Christian because you've been around Christians for a while. But you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ. You've never bowed the knee to Him as Lord. The book of Hebrews warns about having head knowledge, but not having bowed to the Lord in obedience to that knowledge. So Hebrews is for you too, and it will tell you what to do with that knowledge. The book of Hebrews is written for unbelieving Jews too. Those who need to be convinced that Jesus is the true Messiah, not another one that they have to wait for. Hebrews speaks to them too. And Hebrews speaks to our pluralistic society today. Where it says that all religions lead to God. As long as you are diligent and as long as you are upfront and as long as you are serious, all roads lead to God. If you believe in God. Hebrews unashamedly points to Jesus Christ as the only means of deliverance and the only way to God. In other words, Hebrews is a very un-PC book. So, a little bit of background. You need to know this if we're going to go through this. Who wrote this letter? I hope you've read that in your intro already as you've been studying these last two weeks. No? Who was writing this letter? This letter to the Hebrews? Who were these Hebrews? Just to all Hebrews? Why did the recipients need encouragement? You might have got some of those answers now already. What was happening in their lives? These are really important questions if we want to understand this book. And yes, it's a meaty book. And there's a lot of in it. And we're going to climb into it as much as we can on a Sunday morning. But if you really want to get out of this book, you're going to have to go home, look at the passages we've looked at that Sunday, and make that your quiet time for that week. Dig down into Scripture. Otherwise, you won't get as much out of this as you could. And I hope that you've read the book of Hebrews as a letter, as a whole letter. Because if you've done that in, a, in one reading, you'll notice the argument that comes out of it. If you don't, if you read it piecemeal, you won't. You need to read it in one sitting, and you will see what this person is saying. You see, the book of Hebrews speaks about Jesus Christ, and you'll see these themes coming out. It speaks about Jesus Christ and His, relation, his relationship to the Old Covenant and to the Old Testament. What was the Old Testament, what was the Old Covenant saying about the Messiah? And how did that come true to these New Testamental believers? The book of Hebrews speaks about the Old Testamental sacrificial system where lambs were slain, blood was slaughtered. Priests were on duty day in, day out. But this all pointed to a far greater reality when Jesus Christ, the ultimate, the once for all high priest, the one in the line of Melchizedek, would come. The once for all sacrificial lamb was slain. He has now appeared, says the book of Hebrews, and he's done his work for you, believers. However, some believers were tempted to go back to the Old Testamental religious system, Judaism, sacrificial system, 
because of its hardship that they were enduring and which had come on them for one reason only, and that was for following Jesus Christ. You might have experienced something of this yourself in your own families when you've come to Jesus Christ and people reject. Now, we need to know about the imagery, and that's that sheet that I gave you about um, shadows and realities, all right? Shadows in the Old Testament pointing to realities in the New Testament. I'll give you an example of how it works. Let's say uh, it's post-COVID. Please, may it be post-COVID. And you've decided you're going to go overseas. And so you go to your travel agent and you decide on the destination. And you go and book your ticket. You pay big money because COVID insurance. And you've now got your itinerary from your travel agent You've got pictures with brochures of where you're going. You've trolled on the internet. You've, got, you've virtually been there. You've been looking at the places, all the places you're going to visit. You've arranged your medical insurance. You've got the house sitter arranged. Everything is ready. Have you had your holiday yet? No. Until you go on holiday, you haven't had your holiday. You see... The brochures, all the, all the things you've got, all point to a greater reality, the actual holiday. So imagine if a friend came to you and they said to you, well, did you have a good holiday? And you said, no, I decided not to go on holiday. I had my tickets, I had the brochures and everything, and that's enough for me. Silly, isn't it? And in a way, that's what Hebrews is saying. Yes, the Old Testament and everything in it is very, very important. But it's pointing to a greater reality which would come. And you have to participate in that greater reality and everything that comes with it. That's basically how the shadow and the realities of the New Testament work. The shadow is not enough. So people, objects, institutions, events spoken of in the Old Testament, these were but the shadows. The realities were found in Jesus Christ and everything that he brought with him. I'll give you an example. Hebrews 10 verse 1. We're going to look at many of these, but here's one. In Hebrews 10 verse 1, the writer explicitly says that the law, the Old Testamental law of Moses, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. You see, Judaizers and Judaism in the Old Testament were holding on to keeping the law, making sure you were clean, going through all these rituals of sacrificial system so that you would be clean. But actually by being clean in this way, you weren't really clean yet. But it was going to happen to you in advance, in the future, when Christ came. These were things pointing to one day when Christ came and did away with the sacrificial system. And when He died... Your sins were forgiven. Pointed forward. On the stage of God's unfolding plan, the way God had planned things, the shadow had to come on the scene first. But then the shape, and by the shape and the size of that shadow, we could work out what the original figure was going to be. But only when that figure stepped onto the stage of the history of life that God had did we see Jesus Christ in all His beauty and the detail that He brought with Him. 
The Old Testament shadow was pointing to a New Testament reality. All right. So we've done Old Testament shadows, New Testament realities. Now, who wrote this letter? Well, there's a lot of debate around. Was it Barnabas? How do you know? Marty, show me the evidence. Was it Clement of Rome? Maybe. Was it the Apostle Paul? He wrote a lot of the New Testament. He even wrote a, a letter to the Jews, which 2 Peter 3.15 talks about, and which is named. Could be Paul. If I was a betting man, and I'm not. But we do know some things about the author of the book of Hebrews. We know that the author was a dynamic preacher. When you start reading the first part of Hebrews, it sounds like a sermon starting up. And then he starts teaching. So he was obviously an orator, and he, he was applying uh, rules of rhetoric to the opening writing of this letter. He was very knowledgeable of the Old Testament. It comes out all the time. Still adds up to Paul. He knew how to interpret the Old Testament. He was highly educated. You can just see it by word usage and the way he puts phrases together. But it seems that it's not the, the Apostle Paul because, sorry Marty, um, there's a different vocab that he uses to the Apostle Paul and a different way of writing. Some say it could have been a scribe writing on behalf of Paul. But the best guess from all the evidence is that it points to someone else, to Apollos. Acts 18, verse 24 to 28. Dr. Luke describes Apollos as a Jew from Alexandria. Second tick. Well-versed in Scripture. Third tick. He was a pastor. Fourth tick. He was at home in the Greek-speaking synagogues in Rome. Fifth tick. He was trained by the Apostle Paul, so he would have Paul-like phrases. Another tick. And together with Aquila and Priscilla, they'd been expelled from Rome, so they came from Rome. Another tick. And he wrote this letter. But does Scripture tell us? No. So we can only make an educated guess, but we stay with who is the author of Hebrews? We don't know, because Scripture doesn't tell us. Sorry? The Holy, the Holy Thank you. That's a good Christian thing. The Holy Spirit. All right. Now, it's, it seems like it's not important. It's, it is important, but it's not important. If Scripture doesn't tell us, then don't go and jump to your own deductions. We stay with what Scripture says. The two main theme verses I've already highlighted, Hebrews 1, verse 1 to 2, I'll read them again. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, if you think about Old Testament and everything that happened there with the children of Israel, in many ways in many, and at many times, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Think of all the prophets that came in the Old Testament, all the messages God gave to His people through those prophets. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Malachi, all of those prophets. But in these last days, in the New Testament, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom God appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also He created the world. So there's the one theme verse. God spoke in the past in various ways, but now He speaks through Jesus Christ. Main theme. And then the second theme is this, and we looked at this. Why? 
Therefore, we must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, a few other themes, and then we'll come to the end of this. A few other main themes you'll find in the book of Hebrews. We see Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament, as both as high priest and sacrifice. We see that Jesus pre-existed, that he was human, that he was exalted as Jesus, the Son of God. God made man. We see in Hebrews the ability of believers to call upon their great high priest for help and for when the daily pressures and trials come upon us. Hebrews speaks about the greatness of Christ in contrast with other human leaders and the angels. A lot of the uh, Greek-speaking Greek Jewish synagogues were teaching the, the importance of angels and be, being mediators when it came to God's will and also the Word. That Christ is much greater than the angels, says Hebrews. And then lastly, one of the major themes is a reminder in Hebrews of the faith of the heroes and the heroines of the faith. In other words, says Hebrews, as you're struggling through everyday life, you are not alone. Many have come before you. Hebrews has great practical application for us. It doesn't just encourage us to persevere and warn us from falling away. It does a few more things. It reminds us that our homes must be used for God's purposes. Hebrews says to us that some of our fellow Christians are prisoners of conscience, and so we should love them by our actions. Hebrews highlights marriage, that marriage is to be honored, and that special relationship is to be looked after and guarded. Hebrews warns the materialist. Hebrews encourages church leaders. Hebrews warns believers about strange teachings, a very relevant topic when we come to today. So I want to close this morning by going right to the end of the book of Hebrews. Don't ever do this when you're reading good books. Go to the last page. But I want to go to the last page because it gives us hope as we start in the book of Hebrews. So turn with me to this passage, Hebrews 13, verses 20 to 21. I've put it up here for you anyway. Let's read this verse. This is a prayer from the writer of the Hebrews over all these believers who are going through deep and dark times. He's summed up everything that God has done by this stage in the book of Hebrews and shown how Christ has fulfilled the Old Testamental promises. And now he says, what's the so what? Here's the so what. May the God of peace. Who is this? He's the God who is peace and the God who gives peace. By his very nature, he is peace. May the God who is peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, when was that covenant made? With Abraham. When God made that covenant with himself on Abraham's behalf, with mankind's behalf. And there was another covenant with Adam. I will send one who will provide. Way back in Genesis. So, may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant 
brought back from the dead, because of that covenant, God brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. There was work to be done. Who is Jesus Christ? That great shepherd of the sheep. Are you discouraged? There is a shepherd looking after you. The great shepherd of the sheep. May he equip you with everything good for doing his will. That word equips an interesting one. I'm not doing a whole sermon on this. We'll get to it. But it's an interesting word, isn't it? You get equipment to do what? To be able to do something. All right. You don't just get equipment like us riders to just wear it so it looks good. You get equipment to do something. To equip you, thank you Peter, to understand. So may the God who brought Jesus Christ from the dead, equip you in understanding and in abilities with everything good for doing His will. You can't cruise through the Christian life and just say, once saved, always saved, and that's why I'm just going to be there. I can just go along life as I want to. You are there to do the will of Jesus Christ. And God will help you in this, and He will give you peace and may He work in us a continual process, sanctification, what is pleasing to Him. What is the chief end of man? To, thank you, come on, to know God and to, in, to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. What is pleasing to Him? How? Through Jesus Christ. You ain't going to do this on your own. You can work through the power of Jesus Christ. To whom be glory forever and ever. Who? To Jesus Christ. Amen. May it be so. That's going to be Hebrews. My fellow believers, I'm going to ask you as pastor of this church who has to do this with you every Sunday, go and read those four verses for next week. Get as much as you can out of Scripture. It will teach your soul it will equip you to do the work God has put before you this week for His glory. Otherwise, you are living in disobedience before Him. Do His work for His glory in this city. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this great book of Hebrews, which You gave as a gift to not just the New Testamental believers that lived then, but to us too. And in the program, in the schedule of what you have for world history, we are in this book at this time in 2021. You will have your purposes through us. Equip us for whatever you will do in and through us. We ask this in the name of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.